This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Street Fighting Years, an autobiography of the 60s by Tariq Ali. What makes a young radical? Reissued to coincide with the 50th anniversary of 1968, Street Fighting Years captures the mood and energy of an era of hope and passion, as Tariq Ali tracks the growing significance of the 1960s protest movement, as well as his own formation as a leading political activist. Through his personal story, he recounts a counter-history of a 60s rocked by the Prague Spring, student protests on the streets of Europe and America, the effects of the Vietnam War, and the aftermath of the revolutionary insurgencies led by Che Guevara. It is a story that takes us from Paris and Prague to Hanoi and Bolivia, encountering along the way Malcolm X, Bertrand Russell, Marlon Brando, Henry Kissinger, and Mick Jagger. Street Fighting Years, an autobiography of the 60s by Tariq Ali. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Israel is massacring Palestinians who dare to approach a fence that occupation forces have built to shore up an ethnostate founded on the principle of apartheid. Nothing could be more clear, but you wouldn't know that from the at best muddied coverage that prevails in mainstream media accounts. As a New York Times headline neatly summed up their own confusion and aversion to facts, quote, Both sides were driven by history and politics in one of the world's most intractable conflicts. Pause and imagine that headline after law enforcement brutally assaulted civil rights marchers crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, on March 7, 1965. Imagine that headline after South African police massacred schoolchildren in the township of Soweto on June 16, 1976. The victors, of course, write the history. And right now, particularly in the United States, Israel is always a winner. But no one in the United States has emerged as a more powerful and eloquent voice to challenge this narrative, including straight into the lion's den of TV news. Then Nura Arakat, a human rights attorney and professor at George Mason University. She is the author of Justice for Some, Law as Politics in the Question of Palestine, to be published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Really quick before we get started, as of this moment, we are roughly nine people away from reaching our spring fundraising campaign goal of 1,000 supporters on patreon.com slash the dig. If you appreciate what we're doing here, please donate now at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Without further delay, here's Nura Arakat. You'll notice a change in the audio quality near the end of the interview. She had to jump in her car to race to an interview on CNN, where she no doubt did a spectacular job demolishing the most basic premises of American support for Zionist colonialism. Nura Arakat, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. My listeners have no doubt been closely following the mass protests in Gaza 
and the Israeli massacres that have followed. But just to set the table, please give an overview of what has been happening this week and in recent months Mm. in terms of both the Palestinian mobilization and the IDF's brutal repression. So, okay, so we could start this week and we'll work backwards. I'll just say by this week, what we saw was a ton of media attention to mass protests that have been happening in Gaza and amongst Palestinian civil society, also in the West Bank, but more significantly within Israel amongst Palestinian citizens who organized 20,000 protesters in Atlit. Um, But because of the media spectacle over the U.S. embassy move, now Palestinians become important as part of fulfilling and completing a story about Israel and U.S.-American relations, excuse me, U.S.-Israeli relations, uh, but never about Palestinians on their own terms. Palestinians, since March 30th, marking Land Day, have been gathering in mass within Gaza in order to affirm their right to belong and their right to return to their homelands. From that first day of protests on March 30th, Israel shot to kill 14 uh, protesters and immediately doubled down and said, we will neither investigate ourselves for killing these protesters, nor will we allow any international investigation. Those protests have been ongoing for six weeks. Israel's uh, lethal use of force has continued unabated. There has been very little critical analysis about that use of force. And what we saw on Monday, when Israel gunned down 60 protesters who were on their land in Gaza, unarmed, with nothing more than Molotov cocktails and flaming kites. Um, And note that those Molotov cocktails, although they're makeshift bombs, just assuming for anybody's imagination, if you are in Gaza, there is a buffer zone uh, between uh, where these protesters are and what Israel decides is is their side of a, a, a settler frontier. If these protesters threw the cocktails, they would land in the buffer zone. These protesters posed no lethal harm to Israeli civilians, to Israeli military installations, or to Israeli soldiers. The soldiers who came out, the Israeli soldiers who came out, shot to kill in order to intimidate and to thwart were their protests. The murdered included six children and an eight-month-old baby who died from tear gas inhalation. Now, if you want to zoom out, which I think we should... Palestinians yes. have engaged in this protest for a century, for a century, since the British colonial Britain designated Palestine as a site of Jewish settlement in 1917. Palestinians have been protesting and saying, we are here, we belong, you must recognize us as a political community with the right to self-determination. They have revolted and in, in the Great Revolt from 1936 to 1939. They have continued to protest uh, futilely against their dispossession in 1948. They uh, failed, ha- have failed at every juncture, but managed to uh, affirm the, the juridical status of Palestinians as a political community through, in 1974 and have uh, succeeded in affirming that Palestinians exist, that resistance is, is justified, is legal, is moral, and have obviously continued unabated in demanding their right to return and their right to belong. Mark Lamont Hill had a had a post that identified some of the common baseline distortions that obscure this issue. And those included that... It- the two sides have been fighting forever. 
that that it's hope that the issue is hopelessly complicated, that it's religious in nature, that Palestinian rejectionism is driving the conflict, and that Israel's quote right to exist is the central question, a- and that anti-Semitism is a dominant motivation in the Palestinian movement. Y- you have been a refreshingly eloquent and sharp voice on TV news, which, alongside most of the American media, is just incredibly pervasively hostile to any sort of honest assessment when it comes to Israel-Palestine. What would you describe as the major problems in how the media discusses the occupation, and including the very like subtle and insidious ways that it's framed? So I think Mark hit the nail on the head. He is identifying those tropes. Those tropes are long-lasting. During the wars on Gaza, they were also regurgitated. I think that the primary issue is that journalists aren't doing their homework. I think that journalists should be scathing, searing in their investigative analysis, in their corrective to guests that they bring on their programs. But instead, they tend to regurgitate these talking points uh, and, and, and basically filling their timelines as a form of infotainment rather than being sincerely interested in understanding what's happening on the ground. So they recycle these tropes as in place of actually looking to the ground um, and analyzing what's happening. I was on a program recently where the commentator wanted to ask me about Hamas, completely irrelevant. These protests have been organized by Palestinian youth. Ahmed Abu Ratima has published op-eds in the New York Times, as well as in The Nation, explaining that he is one of the primary organizers, how he began these efforts on Facebook, how people have begun to gather in mass. Hamas has actually been part of the efforts to thwart any kind of uh, militarization of the protests, even as it's attempted to co-opt them. These are things that we can follow in Arabic and even in English news press. And yet, when we see atrocities against Palestinians, there is almost a congenital failure, an inability to see Palestinian humanity, to see these as a people fighting for freedom who have been gunned down mercilessly, and instead, wanting to find a way to to justify that and to 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 maintain a, a modicum of liberal conscious not to have to deal with this i think nothing expresses this more blatantly than a news uh than the cover of the new york times yesterday that the cover the headline oh, outrageous the headline was a quote from an israeli that said i just hope that every bullet that felt was justified shame on you. How are 60 people dead? And we need to hear about an Israeli who hopes that the bullets are justified. And if you want to center Israelis in the story, then center the Israeli protesters who have been protesting in front of the embassy in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv against these uh, against this war. Center the voices of the left. Give them a space. Hold them up because the right has taken over and become vicious in Israel, and we have emboldened them. It's the liberal establishment in the United States that's emboldened them and allowed them to do that. And I think that the crux of all of this really comes down to an inability to see Palestinians as human. There's just an inability to see a people struggling for freedom and to say, wow, if I was in that position, I would be doing the same and more. And in fact, the question should not be, why is Hamas, as Tom Friedman said to Anderson Cooper, they're, they're, they're throwing their young into you know onto the front lines, another dehumanizing trope. The question should be, If Palestinians 
in Gaza did not rise up in mass after 10 years of a debilitating land siege and naval blockade, we should be concerned that they are not alive and breathing to not revolt against those conditions. And so I wonder if Tom Friedman would say that about children in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1960s. Or the Rohingya Muslim, where the Myanmar military junta is blaming them, or the Tamils who were annihilated by Sri Lankans, or South Africans who revolted in Soweto. We are, we are, our world is a living history of revolt and resistance. And what this liberal establishment is doing is marking itself as part of the historical problem and legacy, and history will remember them as such. It seems like another key facet of the mainstream media distortions on this that you've touched on already is just that there can be no civil society in representations of Palestine. It has to be all about Hamas and Islamic Jihad and armed militant groups. And just recently, Hamas and Islamic Jihad pointed to uh, a number of people amongst those um, killed by IDF soldiers as, as members of their organization and the media has 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 run away with that. Um, can you say a little bit about about how that's played out? They've gleefully, gleefully run away because now they can add some sort of substance, some sort of flesh to the to the skeleton and their bankrupt arguments that this has been organized by Hamas. One of Hamas's representatives on Palestinian television took credit for 50, said basically, and this is disgusting, this is an opportunistic thing that political parties do, which is taking credit for the dead, to say that 50 of the 60 slain were Hamas members. Okay, the liberal media establishment has run with that to basically say, now you now you know that our use of force was justified. Let's, let's scrutinize that. Number one, we've not believed Hamas on Anything else they've said, nobody has believed them when they said we'll enter into negotiations in a unity party. Nobody has believed them when they said that we want to uh, recognize, uh, be, uh, accept a two-state solution. Nobody has believed them when they said that we are interested in political negotiations, and yet we're ready to believe them now. That's one. Number two, assuming for the sake of argument that, that these were, in fact, members of Hamas, who cares? They were not armed. They were not, and even if they were armed, they weren't armed in ways that posed a lethal threat to any of Israel's civilians or military or even its military installations. They would be members of a political party. At most, they espouse ideas that Israel doesn't like, but we don't execute people for having ideas. Number three, Hamas is the ruling party in the Gaza Strip, which means that it employs the public sector. So that means that anybody that they pay can be characterized as a member of Hamas, deeming all of those people as legitimate targets. Four, assuming that we are going to accept that anybody who's a member of Hamas is then also a legitimate target, consider that Hamas was democratically elected. Palestinians voted for them. There is a significant sector of Palestinian society that votes for them. Does that mean that everybody who votes for them is a legitimate target? How are we in this situation going to impose collective punishment on a people for uh, what their political party does? We don't apply that standard anywhere else. The Bush administration decimated Iraq, is now responsible for between half a million to a million Iraqi civilian deaths. Has anybody justified 
targeting American civilians because we voted for the Bush administration or now voting for the Trump administration, the fact that we go to these arguments again reflects a congenital inability to recognize that Palestinians are a people fighting for freedom. And we are desperately pulling at straws to be able to justify our murder, our execution of their children and of civilians, as well as to not be able to sympathize and empathize with a movement for freedom ongoing now for a hundred years. There's so many echoes of, of history here because any time that there is widespread civilian nonviolent Palestinian resistance, Israel does everything it can and its allies, including in the U.S. media, not only to frame the civilians as as militants, but to push the political situation to the point where it does become an armed conflict. That's what Israel seems to prefer. It's definitely in, in, at Israel's advantage to maintain the veneer of conflict and warfare because it's so easy for it to say that it's using self-defense. In you know Monday's Monday's massacre is a case in point where 60 civilians are shot down. Nikki Haley leaves the UN hall when the Palestinian representative gets up to speak. They will not even investigate it. Um, and so if they can justify that, they're basically saying that no Palestinian protest will be legitimate. Now consider beyond that. Let's just consider something closer to home in the United States. This isn't about whether or not anybody is posing a lethal threat to Israelis or to Israel. This is about challenging Israel's narrative about its righteous conception, which is born of uh, the, 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 the forcible removal of 80% of the Palestinian population uh, native population of what becomes Israel in 1948. And so any kind of protest that actually challenges that becomes either a threat to Israel or uh, anti-Semitic. And we can see that um, in the way that the world, that the United States is responding to the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. What better movement do you want in order to respond to Israel's atrocities than a nonviolent movement that's using these means of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And yet even that Israel has framed as a threat, the second most um, dangerous threat to Israel after a nuclear-capable Iran. And the Senate is walking in lockstep, wanting to legislate um, penalties of up to a year in prison and 20, or it might even be 20 years, and a quarter of a million dollars in civil penalties. Uh, we have now, we're seeing that the, that the Trump administration wants to, uh, wants to confirm a nominee for the, DO, uh, for the DOJ's uh, Civil Rights Division on Education, Kenneth Marcus, who has equated pro-Palestinian protests on campuses, university campuses, as violations of Title VI for being anti-Semitic. There is a full frontal war on any kind of protest, regardless of the means. And it has nothing to do with Israel's defense. It has everything to do with the fact that Israel uh, cannot justify by any means its, its narrative of righteous conception. It's crumbling the uh, uh, young a new generation of, of young Jewish Americans who are now coming of age without the trauma of previous generations, able to imagine a world where they can combat real, systemic, violent, 
anti-Jewish bigotry without predicating the response to that anti-Jewish bigotry on the dispossession removal um, and, and, and systematic gross violations of, of Palestinian human rights. There is a compatibility between our existence. Palestinians are trying to pave paths to futures where we can coexist, but we cannot coexist based on these mutually exclusive exclu uh, equations where only one of us can survive. We can all live there, but we can't live there when Israel predicates its existence on Palestinian non-existence. And so this is this is where we need to move forward. How do we invert that equation to be able to establish different futures? How are we part of the same struggle against anti-Jewish bigotry and against gross systematic violations of Palestinian human rights? It's a very easy question if you ask Palestinians. We've been trying to pave that path, and yet it's an establishment that wants to mute those possibilities by continuously uh, framing um, Palestinians as mass hordes within these Islamophobic tropes of, of, of marauders at the borders that are violent and just motivated by hate. So we have to combat the Islamophobia first and foremost, but we also have to educate ourselves about dehumanizing projects here in the United States. I think you know the work against anti-Black racism is a key point here because we are doing this to our brothers and sisters in the United States who are combating systemic anti-blackness. And it's also about educating what is settler colonialism and how are we a settler colonial nation and how is what Israel is doing fight of an, part of an active frontier of, of settler expansion um, and domination. And so it's the work we do at home that enables us to, to do that work um, in the rest of the world and to do it responsibly. Speaking of those, those possible futures, what is the possible future, the positive possible future? Obviously, the the, the the negative one is against the occupation. But what's the positive future? Is it the, the two-state solution that seems to still be the 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 more the more liberal option that mainstream politicians suggest can solve the conflict? Or do we have to look at a single binational secular state? So let me just start by saying, you know, I think that the negative, the negative possible future, let me take it a step further. It's not just the end of the occupation. What Trump and Netanyahu want us to imagine as the possible future is a garrison state based on religious and racial supremacy. What the Trump administration is doing in the United States and what is trying is marching towards doing the forcible expulsion of, of immigrants, the breaking apart of families, the demonization of populations, using the civil rights uh, DOJ uh litigation wing to prosecute uh, affirmative action because of discrimination against white students is what Israel has been doing for decades. And so that is the negative possible future that we're going to. Nobody's even thinking about ending the occupation. The, the Trump administration in its last State Department report removed the descriptor occupation from the Gaza Strip and the West Bank um, in now in its 2017 report. But what about, you're asking me another, a very intelligent question about the viability of a two-state solution. That is not a solution. It was, it could have been, and it was a compromise for Palestinians who declared that it was the solution when they declared independence of Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza in 1988. They made it very clear that we are going to negotiate based on, on this. Israel had every opportunity to sanctify settler sovereignty within the 1967 uh, borders and has torpedoed that option uh, from the beginning. If you look at the text 
Israelis never offered Palestinians sovereignty, never offered Palestinians a state. They have only offered autonomy, self-autonomy in discontiguous uh, regions within the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. What we see now after 25 years of a farcical peace process is, frankly, the success of Oslo and the, we, what, we, what we're witnessing on the ground in these Bantustans is exactly what Oslo was meant to produce, not its failure. And so now moving forward, how do we resolve this? One, you know, one camp will say we need a one state solution. I wanna urge listeners to think critically that the two state solution for Palestinians was a call for liberation. It didn't, it, it might've been insufficient, but they imagined it as a call for liberation. If we are not more scrutinizing about what that looks like, the one state solution can be similar, similarly perverse. We have to be even more demanding for a, a settler decolonization project of what we need on the ground. This is not about democratizing the settler colony. We need to actually decolonize, which means begins with affirming the, 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 the belonging of Palestinians on the land, which begins with thinking about territorial redistribution, which begins with thinking about the compatibility of Jewish and Palestinian belonging, rather than continuing to push up against the incommensurability of Jewish and, Isra uh, uh, Jewish and Palestinian sovereignty there, or Israeli and Palestinian sovereignty. It's about thinking beyond the limited horizons of what political solutions have offered. That doesn't really make sense in Washington because that Washington's not meant to do that. But for anybody outside that, in, in places where we're, where we're building futures outside of that, and especially amongst our artists who are visioning those futures, how do we vision that? How do we vision that and pave the path? And I just wanna you know, applaud Badil, Zohrot, artists like Larissa Sansur and others who are, Larissa Sansur is a Palestinian futurist. Her film trilogy about the Palestinian future are remarkable. And I would encourage listeners to watch them, to think critically, to engage in discussions that get us beyond slogans of one state versus two state, uh, to start thinking about what it's gonna take for us to build this. Hi, this is Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, the Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Register now before the early bird discount ends on May 25th. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to Lessons from the Teachers' Revolt, featuring voices from the front lines of the strikes. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Workers, 
and by Jacobin, and will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current teachers' rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great space to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. So, obviously, the the courage of Palestinian protesters is incredibly moving. But at the same time, it is hard to be hopeful, given that if Israel can get away with massacring civilian protesters like this, what can't they get away with? Yet, on the other hand, I wonder if now that the faces of these policies are Netanyahu, Trump, and Jared Kushner, these nakedly corrupt and brazenly murderous bottom feeders of the moral universe, that that maybe this will create some positive polarization against Israel and the occupation and and push left-leaning Americans that may have sympathized with Israel in the past to reevaluate. Where do you think things go from here? So one, I would start by saying that there is no room for pessimism. You can have cynicism, which is rightfully placed, but there is no room for pessimism there is no possibility of, of a people being decimated. And as long as we are committed to that, we will not allow it to happen. Palestinians have survived a century of settler colonial eliminatory violence that has attempted to remove them completely, to deny that they exist as a people, to refute their right to return. And Palestinians have not given up. There is a moral obligation to continue to stand with them. That's one. Number two, I think you're right about the polarization that this Trump administration has created. I think that that is a positive thing, but we should also be mindful that the alternative to Trump was not better. What Trump has done has made the U.S. foreign policy on this question unequivocally clear. He has removed the emperor's clothes, but he's not signaled a significant rupture that somehow he's driving the United States on a track that it hasn't been paving for the last five decades. So we need to be careful not to, you know, oppose Trump just to, uh, you know, reinstate the policy that pre-existed him embodied by Democrats and Republicans alike, by Obama, by Hillary Clinton, by Reagan and uh, Carter and the rest. This, this is a consistent policy. Although in fairness to Carter, he, before Anwar Sadat went to Jerusalem in 1979, he was ready to actually uh, usher and see a Palestinian state to fruition. Number three, the extent that we can benefit from Trump's horrific policies, it's, it's a moment of awareness. This has been what civil society in the United States has been creating uh, for decades as well, where Palestinians and their allies in the United States have paid a heavy price by deportation, incarceration, criminalization. And we are now steadily seeing, you know, this space expand. In the past week alone, we've seen a number of celebrities who may have not otherwise ever have looked to this region or thought about it, be able to understand it more clearly, precisely because of a Trump-Netanyahu alliance. And so insofar as that is provided an added benefit, we should continue to build on that to do what we've been trying to do, which is center Palestine as a progressive cause and a social justice movement. That's all that it is. It's part of many. It's not exceptional. And we want to ensure that it remains part of that framework for anybody thinking about 
uh, ending eliminatory violence, ending patriarchy, ending uh, the worst wretched uh, effects of capitalism and imperialism. And so this is part of that framework. If you are a progressive, Palestine should be part of your moral compass and your political um, commitment. Obviously, Chuck Schumer tweeted uh, in support of Trump moving the embassy to to Jerusalem. My last question is, do you see any specific cracks in what has traditionally been nearly lockstep Democratic support for Israel, whatever it does? Uh, Chuck Schumer is part of of an establishment that's basically concerned about his reelection cycle and hardly makes his decisions. Uh, on morality alone. We've seen a number of members of Congress actually go out on a limb, regardless of what it may mean to their their actual, uh, the possibilities of being elected, uh, like uh, Representative Betty McCollum, Keith Ellison, Barbara Lee, uh, Senator Leahy, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. So that's also really, really promising. I think more importantly, if we're considering cracks, let's look to the base. If you look at the Democratic base right now, pupils are indicating that younger Democrats who are registered as Democrats are expressing greater sympathy for Palestine than ever, actually exceeding sympathy for Israel. And this is the future. This is where we're headed. These, this political establishment is not going to last. And now in these midterm elections, we're seeing a sweep of, and we're going to continue to see a sweep of traditional uh, politicians who are being ousted by uh, progressive candidates, including the first Native American governor, including young uh, politicians like uh, Ahmad Kampanajad in San Diego. We are seeing untraditional candidates also uh, pose, frankly, a a great fight against the the political establishment and, and, and potential victories around the corner. And that's what people should be paying attention to. Nura Arakat, thank you so very much, and thank you for kicking so much ass. It's it, it, Your voice is so critical. <laughs> thank you, Daniel. May we all continue to fight together in this juggle. Nura Arakat is a human rights attorney and professor at George Mason University. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home where it assumes respectable forms to the colonies where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, as does telling your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And also, do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this thing going.